always ready for the Word of God. And we want to welcome our online audience this morning. It's always a blessing having you worship with us. While we would love to see you in the congregation, we know it's impossible for some of you, especially those of you who are out of state, but you faithfully join us, and we want you to know you're part of our family. We love you, and we welcome you this morning. First of all, I want to say congratulations to our church family for completing this first week of our corporate 21-day fast. That's a great accomplishment. You're not real excited. Are you just dreading the next two weeks? Is that what this is all about? No one died. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing that we could skip a meal and not die, but rather invest in developing a deeper relationship with the Lord and to know that he has so much more for all of us. But we need to give him that place and often in life, we're just always so busy. Yeah, we do our devotions, we read the Bible, we, we do all of those things, but to give God really focused time and attention where we're willing to make a sacrifice and say, Lord, I'm going to give up this meal. I'm going to give this up during these three weeks so that during that time, I can focus on you. I can open up my heart to you, and I can receive the fullness of all that you have for me. And I just want to remind you that the greater the sacrifice you make during this fast, and God graces us in amazing ways. I want to tell you, I'm an Italian, and I love to eat. And my wife's a great cook, and I love her food. God has just given me marvelous grace this week. And he just does that. He just does that because he wants us to draw near to him. And he gives us the grace to do it, even by making those sacrifices that will give him greater opportunity to work in our lives. Can I remind all of us, because we're living in a uh, 21st century Christianity, where there are a lot of ideas about fasting. And they're good, but they're not necessarily all biblical. So we say, we're going to fast social media, and we're going to fast the television, and we're going to fast maybe doing our hobby, those things that we love. And I believe that coupled with fasting, they are wonderful things because they're going to help you to really galvanize your focus on the Lord. But biblical fasting is from the original word, T-S-O-M, and it means fasting food. Food is something that we really crave. We could live without social media, we could live without TV, we could live without our hobby. When it comes to the stomach, we can't live without food. But God says in his word, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So if you want really more of God, you will give yourself to a fast, whether that's a meal a day, whatever it is, that's between you and God. But to cut yourself off from that which your physical body craves and desires, and to turn your focus onto the Lord, 
That is something that God sees as a pleasing sacrifice, and he honors it in wonderful ways. Well, during this fast, we are deviating from the series that we've been in in the book of Hebrews, and we are returning. Uh, we will return to that after our fast. I've been in the book of Joshua, and the Lord has been speaking to me through that book, particularly during this fast. We know that the book of Joshua is the story of how after Moses died, God raised up Joshua to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. It's a pretty sobering thought to consider that after 40 years of Moses faithfully leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, God did not allow him to lead them into the promised land, and that's another story for another time. But God raised up another leader who would lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And as we read through the book of Joshua, we see how it chronicles the various wars and uh, Joshua, who was a brilliant military strategist, of course, that wisdom and anointing came from God, how he was able to lead the armies of Israel in conquering the promised land so that they could inherit and possess all that God had promised to them. Then we come toward the end of the book, and Joshua actually allocates various portions of Canaan to the 12 tribes of Israel. In looking at this account, I see that it really mirrors our Christian experience, and I believe God has something in particular to say to us this morning. So, God helping us, I am going to be speaking to you on the theme of possessing our inheritance. How many of us know we have an inheritance? How many of us care about possessing that inheritance? Anybody? Hallelujah. I want all that God has for me. So I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to Joshua 21. As we are going to read together verses 43 through 45. If you care to, please read along with me. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And we want to give particular attention to the latter part of verse 43. And they took possession of it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit, we pray today that you would speak to our hearts 
and even as we are seeking you on this fast and you are showing us our inheritance and our possession, cause your people to rise up and to take possession of that which you've ordained for us. By the power of your spirit, help us to hear what you are speaking to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen, and amen. What we read as our text this morning is a recap of how God so wonderfully fulfilled a promise that he made. Do you know when God made the promise? He made the promise to Abraham 430 years before it actually happened. That's pretty amazing. But it tells me something, that when God promises something, he will fulfill his word. He will fulfill his promise. Just think about the Old Testament, who waited for how many years for the Messiah to come? He came. Sadly, they did not recognize him because he did not come as they expected him to come, lowly as a babe born in Bethlehem's manger. So they rejected him. And now in this New Testament, we're told that Jesus is going to come again. But Peter tells us in the last days, men will become scoffers and will say, where is the promise of his coming? And will become doubtful. But those of us who are kingdom people, who believe that God says what he says and means what he says, that he will fulfill his word and he will come again. Has the cold gotten to us? I, is my church family with me this morning? I want to get excited about staking our lives in the foundation of the promises of the Word of God because those promises do not fail. They will come to pass. And it's so sad that we as believers who say we take God as His Word and we believe the Word of God, yet we've not obtained those promises, so we've become discouraged, we become downcast, we're despairing. I guess God's forgotten. No, God has not forgotten. We need to know something this morning, that God's delays are not his denials. And I know some of us have been waiting for a very long time. And we're wondering, God, why are you not hearing my prayer? Why have you not come through with the answer to this need? You know what our problem is? Our problem is we're thinking with this mind, and God has a totally different mindset. <laughs> and we fail to understand that God has a totally different timetable. I love that verse in Romans chapter 11 and verse 33. It says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Do we have wisdom? Do we have knowledge? Oh, we have some, but compared to God, we're pea brains. <laughs> and God has all wisdom and all knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways that are past finding out. 
You know, we didn't need to make up our minds this morning and understand the fact that we will never, ever understand God's ways. Sufficient for us to know He is our loving Heavenly Father. And while there are times in our lives when His ways are inscrutable, incomprehensible, I don't understand what you're doing, Lord. God is wanting to assure us, I have a good plan for your life. And if you will remain faithful to walk with me in obedience, I will fulfill my word in your life. That's why the scripture says we walk by faith, not by sight. We say that's in the Bible, but in reality, for the most part, we walk by what we see, what we feel, what we hear. And we respond to that instead of responding to what says the Lord in his holy word. The Lord will always be faithful to do what he says he will do. As we read in our text this morning, that last verse, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. You know, when time goes by, we forget things. We forget commitments and promises that we have made. But when God makes a promise, he does not forget. So at long last, he brings them out of Egypt. And for what purpose? God brought them out of Egypt so that he might bring them into the land of promise, that promise that he gave to Abraham 430 years before. Isn't that such an accurate picture of our experience as believers? When we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he brought us out. Why? To bring us in. A lot of us are brought out of a life of sin, but have we brought, been brought in to all that God has ordained for us. Peter tells us God called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Aren't you thankful for that? We were once darkness. We lived in darkness. We walked in darkness. We thought darkness. We reveled in darkness. We delighted in darkness. And he delivered us. Because we were captive to that darkness. But he delivered us and brought us into his marvelous light. Where there's truth and holiness and purity and joy and peace and blessing. And guess what else? An inheritance that is for us to possess. An inheritance as much as the Canaan land was an inheritance for the children of Israel to possess. Do you remember the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 and verse 11? Because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. We have received, soon as we get connected to Christ, there's a glorious inheritance. There's a bank account waiting for us to draw from. And sadly, so many Christians are living like paupers because they've not drawn from the bank of heaven and that glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ. This morning, we want to attempt the answer as to why it is that while Christians have 
an inheritance, they are not enjoying that inheritance. They are not possessing that inheritance. I pray that by the Spirit of God, all of us would leave God's house this morning with a new and a fresh desire, with a fresh passion and fervor to lay hold of all that God has for us in our inheritance. And I believe the first thing in answering the question as to why we've not laid hold of our inheritance is because it requires a wholehearted commitment to do all that the Lord requires of us. You know, God is not arbitrary in giving his gifts. Anything that Israel possessed from God, they possessed because they met the requirements of God. Before Moses left the children of Israel, he reiterated all of the laws that God required of them. And he said, if you're going to go into this new land that is flowing with milk and honey, this is what God requires of you. And they said, yes, Moses, we will fulfill all of the requirements of God. It was a commitment that was made, and it's a commitment that God requires all of us to make. But you know, that word commitment in the day and age in which we are living is a word that is really not understood. And the actual experience of commitment is hardly one that we see fulfilled. There are some people that I have not seen in our church for like several weeks, and I know there's no good reason why they're not here. And I can chalk it up to only one thing. There really isn't that whole hearted commitment. This is something that when we come into the kingdom of God as newborn Christians, God doesn't leave any kind of caveat or any kind of uh, provision for us to give him less than a 100% commitment. Commitment is our calling to Christ. Leonard Ravenhill said the, uh, that famous revivalist of the last century said that if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. Let that sink in. And let us examine our lives according to that. Is Jesus truly Lord of all? Is there this utter exclusivity about this commitment that we have made to Christ when we accepted him as our Savior? Some people think that Jesus is just a fire escape from heaven. Some people think, oh, Jesus is going to carry me to heaven on beds of ease and I could just live any old kind of life that I want to live and his blood will always forgive me and as long as I repent, go to confession every week and leave confession and you know what our Catholic friends do and then go out and do the same thing because they know they could go back to confession and receive forgiveness. That's, that's not in the word of God. Jesus said that if you are going to be my disciples... That requires an utter exclusivity, a 100% unconditional commitment to me, a commitment that is so strong that we must love him above all others. And in Matthew 10, Jesus says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I know that when we get saved, oftentimes we say, yes, Lord, I'm going to love you with all my heart. And it's in a moment of emotion. But that commitment that we made when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior is a commitment that must never waver. Because Jesus said, only he that endures to the end. What is it to endure? It's to keep that commitment alive, to keep that commitment 100%. Jesus, I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. Only he that endures to the end. Lord, I'm going to stay red hot for you. Lord, I'm going to love you always with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. You are number one in my life. I remember as we reflect on the life of Caleb, of whom the Lord said in Numbers 14, but my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit in him what was the different spirit in him other than the other spies that went in to spy out the land god says he has followed me fully and as a result of that what was the word of the lord to caleb i will bring into the lamb into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it See, there's no room in our lives for half-hearted devotion. So many Christians today are just half-hearted. They're, they're a little bit warm in church, sometimes a, a little bit even fiery in church, but then they get out into the world on Monday morning and the compromises begin and, oh, this isn't so terrible and I can do this and I could laugh at those dirty jokes and I don't need to be a witness for Christ. That's half-hearted devotion. Secondly, it's also, if we want to inherit all that God has ordained for us, it's a commitment that we are going to possess what God has promised. See, just because God promises it does not mean he's going to hand it to us on a silver platter. And if we want to obtain our inheritance like the children of Israel, the promised, promised land was their inheritance. But did they, did they just cross over the Jordan River and walk in and enjoy the blessing of that land? No, they had to fight for it. They had to take possession of it. And that means that it will require two things of us. We need to have faith to believe like Caleb believed. The other spy said, oh no, we can't do this. They're giants in the land and we're just like little grasshoppers. How will we ever conquer those giants? And some of us as Christians act that way in our own lives. How can I ever get victory? Or This thing is too big for me. This, this temptation is too great. It overwhelms me. Well, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And if you don't know that, then no, you will never be victorious. 
But we need to have faith in God and in the promises of his word that there hath no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. And God will make a way of escape. We need faith to believe the word of God first of all. And if we are to secure the blessings and the inheritance that God has for us, even from this 21-day fast that we're in, according to the word of God, it's very clear. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. This is the requirement. Him that cometh to God must believe that he is. And we just stop there most of the time. I believe that God's in heaven. I believe that he is hearing my prayer. But do we believe what the word says here? He is a rewarder. Our God is a rewarder. If you in this fast are diligently seeking him, and I know that during fasting times, there is so much that comes against us to discourage us, but we will believe the word of the Lord. If we are diligently seeking him by faith, he will reward us. Hallelujah. We need to lay hold of the promises of God by faith. It's not by what we see. It's not by what we feel. It's by what we believe. I'm reminded of Abraham, of whom Paul speaks in Romans 4 and verse 20. When God gave him that, can we say it in natural terms, that insane promise that he and his wife, who were well past the ability physically of being able to have children, my Bible tells me Abraham did not stagger at the promises of God, but was strong in faith. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. I pray today that our faith would be strengthened as we hear the word of God, as we see the examples of faith like Abraham, who at that advanced age of 90, of 100, and Sarah at 90 were able to have a child. Yeah, I know Sarah wavered in her faith. But Abraham did not waver in his faith. What did he do? He gave glory to God. He gave glory to God. I want to encourage us during this fast that we're going to give glory to God. God, all that you've ordained for me, all that you've provided for me, the inheritance that is mine, I'm going to obtain it because you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. I know our stomach is going to growl. But that doesn't mean you lose your faith. Your stomach is going to growl and uh, the devil will whisper in your ear, you're wasting your time. Do you think actually by skipping some meals, God's going to do something special for you? God's not listening. Why are you making the sacrifice? The devil is a liar. He is a liar. If we press through, if we, see, we need to press through. The reality of our lives as Christians is if we are going to obtain our inheritance, we need to fight for it. And that's the third thought that I want to uh, remind us of. When Israel entered the promised land, it did not fall into their laps. There were enemies that had to be routed. Joshua and his army went into battle. 
See, we do what we need to do, but the Word of God says over and over and over and over again, and God delivered them into their hands. When they came against the Girgashites and the Midianites and the Canaanites and all those otherites, God delivered them. And then we read in our text that every enemy was routed. Every enemy was defeated. And God allowed them to come in and they possessed the land. God didn't do it. They possessed the land. See, when you give your heart to the Lord... Something else we need to understand when we become Christians, that we are enlisted into the army of God. If you think that this Christian walk is for some patty cakes, you got the wrong idea. We are soldiers in the army of God. We are in a war. The scripture is clear. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And when Paul tells us that in Ephesians 6, he says if you recognize that you're in a battle, then God has provided for us everything that we need to wage war in this battle. And we're familiar with the armaments, are we not? Therefore, take upon yourself. We need that shield of faith. We need that helmet of salvation. We need the sword of the Spirit. And we know all of the, 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 the pieces of armor that we're to take so that we could war a good warfare, but we stop before we get to what Paul said at the very end, praying with every kind of prayer and petition at every opportunity in the spirit. See, you, you could be armed with the helmet of salvation and know that you know that you know that you're saved and nothing can separate you from the love of God. You can have the sword of the spirit and quote scriptures, but if you are not communing with God in diligence, in fervor, in passion, in deep, desperate love, recognizing, God, I need you. I can't do this without you. I can't obtain my inheritance unless you come into me with all of your fullness. I'm going to fight in prayer. That's where we fight on our knees. That's why Paul says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. If somebody looks at you the wrong way or offends you, you think your battle is with them. That, that's not where the battle is. The battle is really within your own soul. You need to get on your knees and, Lord, help me to overlook this offense and help me not to be bitter and help me to have love for the unlovely. That's the fight that we need to wage. And there are some battles that we are dealing with in the realm of the spirit that can only be dealt with by prayer and fasting. I know it's not popular in the 21st century. You know, it's a pretty amazing thing to consider that there are hundreds of thousands, I'm sure, of Christians today who have been Christians for years and years and years and have never fasted. It's like it's not even in the Bible. But do we recognize it's all throughout the Bible? I know that the Pharisees said to Jesus, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting like the disciples of John the Baptist? See, John the Baptist even had his disciples fast. And do you realize John the Baptist is really part of the Old Testament, even though he's recorded in the New Testament. The New Testament happens when Jesus came on the scene, 
And when he brought the kingdom of God that was born on the day of Pentecost, that's where the, the church is born and the, the kingdom of God, really. The kingdom of Jesus preached the kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming after I die on the cross. I'm going to open up a whole new way, a whole new covenant, a, a whole new inheritance for the people of God. But fasting was always part. And as you study history, the Christian church fasted that the first New Testament church, I know it's not in the Bible, but in here, early historical records, the New Testament church fasted twice a week. And down through the years, the church has always been fasting. And I'm so thankful that throughout the world, we are not alone in this 21-day fast. Christians all over America and around the world, Christians who are sincere and earnest in their faith, they are fasting. But you really want to see the power of fasting? Look at those who've been most mightily used by God. The generals that God raised up to do the miraculous were all men and women who fasted and prayed. And yet there are some that just want to slough it off and say, oh, fasting is optional. You don't need to do that. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees in response to their claim? Your disciples don't fast. He said, why should they fast while the bridegroom is with them? The bridegroom is with them. That's a time for party. That's a time for rejoicing. But when the bridegroom is gone, they will fast. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, not if you fast, but when you fast. If you're my disciple, when you fast, this is the way you do it. And when you fast in secret, I will reward you openly. I don't know if any of you are familiar with pastor evangelist Jonathan Shuttlesworth. He's an evangelist that has traveled widely for years all over America and also around the world. And the Lord called him to be a pastor in Pittsburgh, and he has his church on a 21-day fast and is doing live streaming twice a day during these 21 days. And I tuned in one day, and he made this statement that gave me great pause. A Christian's decision to ignore prayer and fasting is a decision to be powerless against certain demonic powers do you know uh, jesus said his, said to his disciples to give you power to heal the sick to raise the dead to cast out demons but there came a day when there was a demon they could not cast out and they came to jesus saying lord why could we not cast him out and in mark 9 we read jesus's answer was this kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting. What was needed? Prayer and fasting. Did you know that there are sicknesses that do not have their ideology in a physical issue? Because there are people who go to every imaginable doctor, take every imaginable test, and the doctor can never find anything. You know what it is the result of? Jesus said that it is a spirit of infirmity. There are certain demonic powers 
that afflict the bodies of others that are not physical illnesses, even though they manifest physically, their root is spiritual, and the only way to deal with them then is spiritually. There's something else that uh, Jonathan uh, uh, said that some people suffer with demonic harassment for decades when they could be delivered by a three-day fast. I know what the problem is. Oh, the Bible says if any man is sick, let him call the elders of the church and let them anoint them with prayer and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise them up. That is not the only method that God uses. See, again, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Every situation is different. God has a different sovereign plan for every situation. And maybe, just maybe, there is a situation, and maybe you're sitting here, or maybe you're hearing me through the web stream. There is something that has been afflicting you, and God's Spirit is speaking to you today. The root of that thing is spiritual. It is an attack of some demonic influence that is afflicting you. And the only way it could be dealt with is by prayer and fasting. And I feel the need to say this again. Some of us could fast like champions. We could go without food all day long. It doesn't bother us. But if that fasting is not accompanied by focused, intense, fervent prayer in seeking the face of God, then all we're doing is a hunger strike. And it's really not doing us any good at all. So what else must we fight in order to obtain our inheritance? We're fully aware of the powers of darkness that are on the outside. But do we recognize that there are times that the enemy is enemy? And are we willing to defeat the enemy that is enemy? And you know what that enemy is? It's our flesh. That enemy is our carnal nature. And this business of uh, routing the enemy just during a fast is something obviously that we need to do, but it's something that we need to do every day of our life as long as we are Christians, for as long as the spirit is housed in this physical body, there is a carnal nature that has the ability to rise up and do things that are dishonoring and displeasing to God, things that will cut us off from the blessing of God, things that will hinder us from obtaining our inheritance. You know, when we got saved, we followed the Lord in the waters of baptism. And what do the waters of baptism represent? They are symbolic of when we go into the water and go down under the water that we, we are identifying with Christ in his death and in his burial. But sadly, we leave it at that ritual. Oh, I got water baptized. Hallelujah. I was obedient to the command of the Lord. Be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I did what God commanded of me as a new believer. 
But every day of our lives, we need to recognize I am crucified with Christ. There is only one way to deal with the flesh, and that is to nail it to the cross, to identify with Christ, to go to the cross and say, Jesus, this carnal nature has died with you, and I die with you today so that I might be raised to walk in newness of life. See, water baptism is not just a metaphor of Christ's burial and uh, his death and his burial, but it's something that we need to flesh out in our daily walk with Christ. We all want to walk in resurrection life, but you can't be raised from the dead until you die. I'm sorry. It just doesn't work that way. Resurrection is impossible there needs to be a death, and for so many Christians today, we're so alive to this carnal nature that we can't obtain all that God has for us. You see, as Christians, we, we, we recognize the doctrinal part of it. Positionally, yes, we are in Christ. Positionally, yes, we died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We were raised with Christ. That's great doctrine. That's New Testament doctrine. But that doctrine now needs to be carried into our experience where we die to ourselves every day and we are raised every day to walk in newness of life. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. What did Paul say? I die daily. And if we're truly going to die to ourselves, that also means we are going to die to the world. What does God's word say? Do not love this world nor the things that it offers you. For if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know what the world is? It's not planet Earth. God is not saying don't love planet Earth. I think he's glorified when we love some things about planet Earth, the beauty of nature and all that God created and all that he provides and all that he gives us and how a seed could be planted in the ground and, and this beautiful plant can grow and provide food for us. We, we could glory in that, but there is a system in this world that is ruled by Satan He's the prince and power of the air. And this whole world, the scripture says, lieth in the wicked one. That is not to say that God is not ultimately in control, but Satan has real power over this earth. And his real power, why do you think we have what we have in the world today? So much violence, so much hate, so much killing, so much immorality, so much perversion. It's because people are listening to the voice of the enemy. They are under, they've submitted themselves to the world system. It's a Babylonian system that the scripture says is a metaphor of a system that is contrary to God, that hates God, that is at enmity against God and diametrically opposed to all that is good and all that is godly. And so these are the things, if we're not awake, if our eyes are not open, if we're not sensitive to the Spirit and walking by the law of the Spirit of life, those things will pursue us and entice us. What does John call them? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. 
the pride of life. Now let's not be so pharisaical as to say, oh, that, that doesn't bother me. I've rejected the world. If we are in this flesh, there are times when your flesh will lust after something that is sinful. There are times when your eyes will look at something that is sinful and want something that God says you don't need. You should give that money to advance the kingdom. Yet we want to James says, what do you do? You ask God for things. Why? So that you might consume it on your own lust, on your own desires. I want this because having that new car is going to make me feel special. Buying that new home is going to make me feel like, wow, I've achieved and I've arrived. It's not bringing honor and glory to God. That's of the world. And I'm not saying that if we put God first, there's no telling what God would bless us with of the things of this world. Let me stop at that because I'll start preaching another sermon. But it's these fleshly appetites that are so blatant and come to entice us. But John Piper said it so well, and I love this quote, the greatest enemy of hunger for God, are we hungry for God? Is there an enemy in our life against that hunger? There sure is. And it's not the poison of the apple. Sounds like food, right? But instead, it's the apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the prime time drivel of triviality that we drink in every night as we sit on our sofas before the boob tube. And let's be honest with ourselves and with God. How often are we nibbling at that apple pie that seems so innocent in and of itself? Oh, I'm just going to look at Facebook for a minute. And we end up 20 minutes later, we're still scrolling. But have we been willing to give 20 minutes to God in prayer and in the word? So if it's true that we're always gravitating to these things, these things of the world that diminish our hunger and appetite for, the, for God, then, then the Bible is so clear. And this is very sobering. Listen to this. If you love the world and the things that are in the world, if you love Facebook more than you love spending time with God, if you love TV more than you love spending time with, with God in fellowship with him, if you love your, your pet sin more than, oh, it's just, oh, that's just a little white sin. Uh, everybody does that. If you love that more than you love spending time with God, what does the scripture say? The love of the Father is not in him. I don't know, that hit me right between the eyes. It speaks so very clearly. In other words, we cannot serve two masters. This goes back to that 100% commitment to God. We will either love the one and hate the other. That's Jesus said it unequivocally. That's the deal, friends. 
You're either going to love God with all of your heart. Now, if you love God with all of your heart and you want to go to Facebook because you just want to scroll for a few minutes to see what your friends are saying and doing, there's no, I'm not going to say you can't do that. Certainly you could do that and enjoy it as a blessing and bless others by saying, God bless you, this is wonderful and uh, spread some cheer to those who are downhearted. And Yeah, I'm praying for you. I believe Facebook could be a wonderful tool in blessing others, but it's also a curse in being something that is so worldly that distracts us and keeps us from God. And there's only one thing that God is requiring of us today, and that is consecration. I know that's a very old-fashioned word. When I was growing up in the church, we heard it so often. And in fact, after every service, how many want to come to the altar and re-consecrate themselves to the Lord? Maybe it's a word that's so archaic that it's not even familiar. The word means being set apart exclusively for God and for His holy purposes. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Your body what I do with this body, how I move these hands, what these hands touch, what these eyes see, what these ears hear, what this mouth speaks, what this mind thinks and meditates on. I lay it on the altar so that it might be consumed by the fire of God. That is consecration. It's being set apart for God. Well, how do we get consecrated? And I'm going to close in a moment here. It's by searching our hearts searching our hearts. You know, fasting is in particular a time where we have opportunity to do some real introspection. You know, the scripture says, examine yourself. Paul admonished the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. I love the way Peterson makes this so much clearer in the message. Test yourselves to make sure you are solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. In other words, don't be complacent. Don't be lethargic. Don't be apathetic. Give yourself a regular checkup. You need first-hand evidence, not mere hearsay, that Jesus Christ is in you. See, as your pastor, I could preach to you and say, Christ is in you. But can you say in your everyday experience that Christ is in you? That Christ is truly Lord over all? That Christ has consumed your heart and you have a passion to serve him and love him all the days of your life? See, we need to examine ourselves because this heart is so deceitful. This heart is so wicked. Jeremiah says the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. You know what that's telling me? It deceives me. It tells me I think I'm all right. It tells me, God, I, I, I'm patting myself on the shoulder. I go to church every time the doors are open. I read my Bible. I pay my tithes. I try to be a good Christian. Yet in that hidden place of your heart, there might be lust, 
There might be bitterness. There might be unforgiveness for some sin that was committed against you years and years and years ago, but it's still there, and every time the name of that person comes up, something rises up within you that is ungodly and unholy and so unlike Jesus. That needs to be repented of. If you want to gain your inheritance, if you want to possess all that God has for you and for me, we must examine our hearts. And this should be our prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Because I, I can't know my heart. My heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. Who can really know how bad it really is? God's word teaches us that we don't get our inheritance by it being handed to us on a silver platter. We don't enjoy the manifest presence of God. And I close with this thought this morning. You know, when we come to a new beginning, it's my prayer as it was Moses' prayer, Lord, carry us up, not hence, except your presence goes with us. Moses cared about one thing more than anything else. He needed the presence of God to accompany him every step of the way. I mean, can you imagine Moses leading what was four or five million people? <laughs> leading them through the wilderness, through all the dangers and everything else. God, I can't do this without your presence. What makes us think that we could do it without his presence? And if we desire his presence, it is not a given. It's not something that we just get because we're Christians. It comes as a reward. I know God is always with us, but I don't want to just know that he's with me. I want his manifest presence. I want to sense his presence. I want the experience of the songwriter who said, and he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me, I am his own. And the joy that we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. It's the joy of the manifest presence of God in our lives. How does that manifest presence come? It comes only in one way. By seeking God. By following the ancient way, which is a way of prayer. It's a way of fasting. Jeremiah said, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Are we interested in possessing? Are we interested in settling in and resting in the enjoyment of all that God gives us and yet with the anticipation of the more that he has for us it comes in one way by seeking God and seeking him with all of our hearts God spoke through Moses and I close with this verse but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we ask today that your word would convict us, would convince us of where we are not in alignment with you. For it's only as we are in alignment with you 
even as you commanded Moses to build the tabernacle according to your specific specifications. So your word has outlined for us today your specific requirements of us. And where we are not in alignment, show us God. Bring us to a place of repentance. Bring us on our knees where we will make it right with you so that as our hearts have found space for you, you may pour in the fullness of your blessing and we may obtain the inheritance that you have for us. We thank you, faithful Holy Spirit, for doing only what you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're closing this morning with singing another 